Good afternoon. This is Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am your host for today's show, we are listening to the keynote address from the 2020 Farmer to Farmer Conference, and this address was given on the afternoon of November 2nd. The keynote speaker is Laura Legnick. Laura is an award-winning soil scientist who has explored agricultural sustainability for more than 25 years as a researcher, policymaker, educator, author, consultant, and farmer. So here is Laura Legnick's keynote address from the 2020 Farmer to Farmer Conference, speaking about climate change, resilience, and the future of food. So first I wanna just talk a little bit about climate change, mostly about what farmers in this country are, are telling us about climate change. So for more than a decade, farmers and ranchers all over the US are saying that weather is changing. It's important to notice it's weather that's changing. Um, farmers and ranchers that I've talked with have lots of different stories about why it's changing. And I think that that's not particularly important as we um, bring, in trying to bring people together to develop a common vision to work towards. I think it's a very useful way to think about the issues, which is that weather patterns are changing. And no matter what you believe about why they're changing, the fact is that they're changing and farmers and ranchers all over the country are seeing these changes. The kind of most common changes that they're reporting and are uh, those that I've, I've shared here. Water, too much and not enough, challenging everyone everywhere uh, all over the country. More variable temperatures, more variable rainfall, also an enormous challenge for many, many growers. Warmer nights, warmer winters are starting to become noticeable in some parts of the country more so than other parts of the country. More frequent and intense heat waves, new pests and disease pressures, so sometimes these are just higher or longer seasons of uh, traditional pests, but there are also new pests and diseases moving into different areas. Now, which of these challenges are at the front of mind of a particular grower or farmer uh, will depend on their location in the US because these changes are happening at different rates in different, in different places. Um, and they're more or less intense, depending on your location, uh, and also what you're growing, because some of these challenges are more difficult for vegetable growers than livestock producers and, uh, and the like. As I was beginning to engage with Maine farmers and work with MAFCA um, this year around climate resilience, I also looked and started to learn more about Maine and about what Maine farmers are experiencing. So this is just a collection of just a few of the headlines that I found just from this year in Maine media. So it's all local or regional statewide media. And 
these kinds of headlines are very consistent with what farmers and ranchers are saying all across the country. Um, when it comes to weather, abnormal is the new normal. Another way that, that I've heard a number of farmers say it is that it's becoming predictably unpredictable. And they're, they're thinking through how do you manage that predictable unpredictability. Um, wildfires are becoming more of an issue all around the country and they're affecting farmers because Many of them are growing in more rural areas where we have woodlands and forests. Um, I've heard from a number of farmers already in Maine this year about just the way that the weather um, unfolded this year, in 2020 particularly, um, was really difficult. A wet cold spring and then, and then uh, a dry drought. And you can see from these headlines that 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 is also made the headlines in main news. Um, I noticed this year you had the experience of a flash drought. That is a, a type of weather event that I never even heard of until about two years ago. Uh, and last year, the Southeast, where, where I'm speaking to you from, um, experienced a regional flash drought. And that reminds me, I, I did wanna say, um, when I got started that I am, I am right now in Asheville, North Carolina, um, speaking to you from my home in Swannanoa, which is just a little bit east of, of Asheville. Um, and in keeping with the way that, that we started this, this whole session, it's something, something that I think about quite a lot is that I'm living, I, I own about two acres in the Swannanoa Valley and this is land that was, was shared by the nation to the east and the Cherokee nation to the west. And one of the interesting things about where I live is that it was land that was created as a buffer between these two um, communities, Native American communities. Um, they both could, sh they shared this land, both could hunt, and get materials out of this land, but both communities agreed, or both nations agreed that neither one would settle this land. So it's, a, it's an interesting um, place to be living in this era where we're really beginning to think about who came before us how are, as uh, European descendants, we have, we have engaged with those peoples and where we live today. Um, so these, so getting back to what Maine farmers are um, experiencing, you know, all of these headlines, um, all of these experiences that are being shared just from this year are very consistent with what what other farmers in other parts of the countries have been experiencing to more or less extent over the last decade or so. Scientists also have a way of talking about these changes that they're seeing in weather. Um, and these are, these are some of the high level findings from the last national climate assessment, which was released in 2018. Some of those high level findings noted that agriculture is going to experience reduced productivity and quality of crops um, because of, of climate change impacts. 
There's going to be an increased degradation of soil and water resources, primarily because of the increase in intensity and um, frequency of heavy rain events followed by punctuated by longer dry periods and droughts. Going to be increased competition for declining water resources. And this is going to be true in the East. The West has managed and dealt with um, limited water resources for, for 200 years, but we're gonna to begin to, those of us in the East are going to begin to have to start managing declining water resources as well. There'll be, there'll be new health challenges to rural populations. Um, for example, um, in, the, in the Southeast, we're, we're already beginning to see migration into our region of, of diseases that are more typical of tropical areas. Um, and particularly heat waves and high nighttime temperatures are going to also affect rural populations, particularly people working in agriculture, just as an example. And finally, all of the, ch the climate change impacts are going to collectively reduce the adaptive capacity of rural communities. So rural communities are going to find that it's more difficult to adjust and to navigate some of these changes as climate change uh, proceeds. But I really think that the National Farmers Union summed it up pretty well. So this was a blog um, after it was responding to the, the fourth national climate assessment released in 2018. And it was, it was very short and sweet and said, really there's three things that farmers need to know about climate change. And the first is it's going to get more difficult and more expensive to grow food. The second is that managing resources, land, water, nutrients, uh, waste, managing resources will strain relationships between farmers and communities. This is really speaking to that um, growing, emerging um, challenges around the availability of resources and who's going to get them. And then the third is that agricultural landscapes can make climate change worse or they can be a source of climate change solutions. And I really see this way of thinking that the National Farmers Union, the way that they put this really speaks both the dark and the light in the climate change challenge. We know it's gonna get more difficult and expensive to grow food. Farmers all over the country have already, are already experiencing that and some farmers in some parts of the country have already experienced what it's like when a city says, no, we're going to use that water, we're shutting it off to farmers. Um, we haven't experienced that in the East, but we will experience those kinds of strains in relationship around water and other resources that agriculture depends on. But the light in this story is that it turns out that agriculture and agricultural landscapes have kind of a superpower in that depending on how they're managed and depending on the relationships that farmers and other growers make with the communities that they're serving, 
agriculture can actually be a solution, part of, the, of a solution to climate change. So the last thing I want to say about climate change is that uh, in, the, in the work that I did back in 2012 with USDA, we were working, I want to share one of the high level findings of that particular report, climate change and agriculture in the United States, effects and adaptation. And I want to share this particular high level finding because we worked really hard on this finding. It caused a lot of dissension on the lead author team. We argued back and forth about it. And then once the report went out for review, we got a lot of pushback on this particular finding. And I'll tell you that the part of this, well, there are actually two parts of this. Basically this entire statement um, caused a lot of discomfort in the greater agricultural community. And I like to discuss this statement just a bit in these kinds of talks because I, it really brings to light the two parts of what we think we know about agriculture um, in, in a very powerful way. So the first part of this statement is that agriculture has a long history of successful adaptation to climate conditions. And I noticed when I was going through the main, the, the uh, media from the last year in Maine, looking for those headlines I've already shared, how often those stories opened with farmers are, are uh, always deal with weather. Weather's been a thing that farmers have had to manage. It just goes along with farming. It's part of the deal. And so that leaves the reader with the idea that, oh, okay, so climate change is rough, but farmers know how to handle this. It, it's part of just being a good farmer, managing weather risk. So that's the first part I wanna bring your attention to. And the second part, which is the part that got all the reviewers and, and folks on the lead author team uh, into arguments and created a lot of discomfort was that climate change represents a novel and unprecedented challenge to the sustainability of agriculture. And the word I really want to focus on there is unprecedented. We used, we used that word very intentionally. And that's a word that in the last year, it has you're, everyone's seeing, we're seeing it all over the news, it's in headlines, it's being used to describe um, this new challenge that has hit the world this year, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but I think in this, it's been used to the point that we're kind of forgetting what it really means. And 10 years ago, we used this word very intentionally. <clears throat> Unprecedented means never known or done, never done or known before. It's an adjective. It's a word that you probably want to use pretty carefully because it's quite a, a claim that something has never been done or known before. And this word created a lot of pushback from our reviewers of the 2012 report. 
Um, but as I said, we chose this word very carefully, and here's why. Yes, farmers have always had to manage the risks associated with weather. Yes, that's part of a typical uh, set of challenges that any farmer or rancher faces and that farmers have faced in the US for the last 200 years. What is happening with climate change is something very different from weather risk. And in fact, never before has a farmer in the last 200 years in the US has a farmer a rancher had to deal with the more variable weather and more frequent intense extremes that farmers today are dealing with. But the story really is even bigger than that. Never before in the history, the 10,000 year history of agriculture have farmers ever had to manage the kind of variability that farmers today are faced with. So you see, when we were, uh, when we cho chose this word unprecedented, we really meant unprecedented. It turns out that in the last 10,000 years of our history as a species, we have been in a very unusual period of climatic stability. So everything that we know as a farming culture has been learned, developed, used in a time of unusual climatic stability on the planet. So we really are in unprecedented times. For all you farmers out there, give yourself a break. What you're trying to do right now in agriculture is really difficult. As we began to develop the report, I led the adaptation chapter on the USDA study. And so my job was to gather some scientists together and then together to look at what we, know, what we knew about how to adapt to unprecedented conditions. Now remember, these are conditions that we have no experience of, have never done or known before. And it was in this work to, to review what we knew about how to manage in such conditions that we developed, we, we, I ran into resilience science. We discovered resilience science as a body of knowledge that we thought could be particularly useful to adapting agriculture to climate change. So what is resilience? It's a resilient science. It's a 50 year old system science. It's rooted in ecology. It doesn't assume stability. And so, and it gives us language and tools to shape, to manage and shape change. It's really a perfect body of knowledge to begin to use to develop tools for guiding effective adaptation. And one thing I'd like to say too, most everything that I talk about in this keynote 
I'm, I'm addressing climate resilience, but resilience is about, gives us tools and language to shape any kind of change, any sort of disturbance or shock. So everything that I'm, I will speak about for the rest of, of today, um, it, it, I'm addressing climate, but it also would address equally well any kind of shock or disturbance, including the incredible experience that farmers had this year um, with the pandemic hitting right at the start of our growing season. So I said that resilient science gives us some language and a set of tools to manage and shape change. And one of those tools, I want to just share three with you today. One of those tools is the whole idea, the notion of resilience. Um, if you don't remember anything else that I say today, I'd, I'd like you to remember this. Resilience is a whole lot more than just bouncing back. It turns out that resilience, uh, resilient systems have three complementary capacities. They have the capacity to, to bounce back. Yes, that's that middle capacity, that recovery capacity. <clears throat> but it's actually the other two capacities that I think are much more useful as we think about how we're managing change in the food system. The first capacity is response. And this is the ability to design and manage a system so that when there is a disturbance or shock, there is little or no damage. This is a really powerful idea. This says that we can create farms and food systems that are designed so that when there's a disturbance, there's no damage. We never need the capacity to bounce back or recover because there's no damage in the first place. The second complementary capacity is this recovery capacity. It has a little bit of a different meaning in resilience than you typically will see when we talk about bouncing back because it also includes recovering from a shock or disturbance at low cost and swiftly. So we're thinking as we design and manage these systems about how we can quickly recover. The third equally important capacity is transformation capacity. And that's the ability of a system to recognize when it's time to change, to recognize that conditions are shifting and that we need to begin to think about how to redesign our system, redesign or change the management so that we can improve the response and recovery capacity. So these are the three complementary capacities of resilience. Lots here. If you wanna learn more about this and how to adapt it to um, your farm management, I'll be doing a, a workshop with Rachel at, on Friday afternoon to discuss how to incorporate some of these ideas into risk management on your farm. The second tool or, or set of uh, concepts and language that I think are useful to apply to agriculture and food systems 
is what I call the three rules of resilience. And it turns out that scientists who have looked at resilient systems, no matter whether they're a family or a farm or a food system or a community, um, they find that, that these resilient systems tend to follow three important rules. The first is that the systems are made up of diverse relationships of mutual benefit. So how this relates to a farm, and particularly an organic farm, the, we're talking about relationships here, not just between people or between people and, and soil or between people and livestock, but diverse relationships at every scale of the farm and then moving out beyond the scale of the farm to the community in which the farm resides, the communities that the farm um, serves, and relationships of all kinds. So it may be between the soil microorganisms or between the plants and the soils and soil microorganisms or between livestock between livestock and soil, livestock and people and plants. And I know because I'm speaking to an organic farming audience that this is really not a difficult rule for you to imagine. From my perspective, one of the real strengths of organic farming and one thing organic farming has to teach the rest of us uh, about how the rest of agriculture, about how to follow the rules of resilience is this focus on soil health and the principle in organic farming that underlies a lot of organic farming of healthy soils make healthy livestock, plants make healthy livestock and people and so on. So I know that you, that you really get that rule. <clears throat> the second rule of resilience is regional self-reliance. And this is the idea that, that the, a system can that a region can provide all of the critical resources necessary to sustain itself from within the region. So there's very little importing of critical resources, things like water and energy and nutrients uh, and food. Um, very little importing of critical resources into a region and very little exporting of critical resources from the region. Uh, another important critical resource that I forgot to mention is uh, ingenuity, innovation, human capacity, uh, and management. So all of, all of those ideas and science, just new knowledge and innovation. So all of those critical resources needed by a, a community or by a region is provided primarily from within that region. I think that organic farmers can have a lot to teach the rest of agriculture about this as well. But I also think that this is an area, this is a rule of resilience that there's probably some more to learn within organic farming about how to pull in some of those supply lines, um, those imports, and also thinking about exports and how we we manage those on a regional level as well. And the third rule of resilience is that resilient systems accumulate community-based wealth. And when I talk about wealth here, I'm not meaning just money. I'm talking about all the resources that a community needs for its well-being. 
So this would be natural resource wealth, human resources, social resources, physical or technological resources, and also financial resources. They're certainly important. And together, if a, if a system is following all three rules of resilience, these three rules will help to support those three complementary capacities of a resilient system, response, recovery, and transformation. <clears throat> and the last tool uh, or, or way of thinking that, that resilience thinking can help us with, because we, we need to really shift our thinking in order to build more resilient systems, is, is these basic assumptions of industrialism, these kind of underlying assumptions that we make in modern society, if you will, um, are going to have to shift. And resilience thinking can, can help us think about how they need to shift in order to design and manage for resilience. The first is that we no longer can assume optimum conditions. Remember, we, are, we have left a time in our 10,000 year history as a species in which we are living in uh, climate stability. So we have to remember that we're no longer operating from the uh, assumption that we can create optimum conditions on a farm or in the food system. So we need to move from optimum to the assumption of variable conditions. And resilience thinking can help with that. We need to move from using industrial design and management principles to using ecological and management principles. We need to move away from thinking about efficiency, kind of a hyper-focus on efficiency, to thinking about design and management for robustness. Um, this, there's a lot of really interesting ecological research that uh, I find particularly fascinating around this notion of efficiency. And I, I wanna share a little bit of it just because I think of these changes this idea of efficiency might be the most difficult for our modern minds or our industrial minds to, to actually make a shift. And there's in ecological research, and this has also been applied to human systems of all kinds, it turns out that there's a, in healthy ecosystems, there's, a, there's a, what I think of as a sweet spot. The ecologists call it the window of vitality. It's a sweet spot between not enough uh, diversity, biodiversity, and too much biodiversity. And it turns out that very efficient systems, modern systems, don't have enough diversity to sustain the system through shocks and disturbances. But it also turns out that if a system is too diverse, it will have also not the ability to sustain the system, to sustain itself through disturbances and shocks. And there's an interesting body of research that's developing now in, the, um, in agriculture in the US around the idea of what's the right size or the what amount of diversity for CSA farms. 
And what we're finding is that CSAs are, are is a, to me, CSA is a particularly interesting place to try to apply this resilience thinking because it turns out that CSAs that have sustained themselves over time tend to reduce the number, uh, the diversity of species being grown on any particular farm um, to around a number of roughly 15 to 20 from maybe starting out with 40 or 50. So this is just one ex practical example of, of some of the interesting information that you can find within resilient research that has very practical applications to organic, small-scale organic farming and, and regional food systems. There also needs to be a move from expert knowledge to place-based knowledge. Now, I'm not saying that we should ignore expert knowledge. There's absolutely a place for scientific information and new information um, being produced through science, kind of formal traditional science. But what resilience thinking tells us is that we really must uh, tailor any expert knowledge with place-based knowledge and wisdom of place. So I see this as a, a shift to interrogating scientific knowledge by doing regional and local testing to see if it holds in that place and makes sense given the, the realities of place. I've already mentioned that we need to move from imported to regional resources. That's one of those rules for regional self-reliance. And then we need to also move from extractive to more regenerative economy. Again, that's related to that last rule of resilience, uh, cultivating community uh, assets or community resources. So this is just one more example of how, you, how the kinds of wisdom uh, that you can find in resilience thinking that can help you to navigate the unprecedented conditions that we're faced with today. As I was looking at these, let's go back one. As I was looking at these conditions, I remember this was now 12, uh, 10 years ago or so that I was really starting to get into this knowledge, um, this knowledge base of resilient science. I was looking at this from a perspective of having 20 years or so ex uh, experience doing sustainable and organic farming research. Uh, education and uh, extension work. And what this looked like to me as I started looking at this, hmm, optimum to variable conditions, industrial to ecological design, uh, expert to place-based knowledge, imported to regional resources, extractive to regenerative economy, that a, a kind of a light went on. I thought, wow, you know, that looks a lot like sustainable agriculture, kind of sustainable agriculture uh, the traditional sustainable agriculture. Um, and so I thought it would be really interesting to interview farmers and ranchers all around the country, sustainable farmers and ranchers, uh, to find out what their experience of climate change was. <clears throat> so remember I said that at the time I started doing that work with USDA on the, on the national report, 
there was no research being done in this country on what farmers, what, what kinds of weather changes farmers were experiencing, how they were adapting to them, and uh, just what their thinking was on the resilience of their operations. And so I began a climate listening project and worked with farmers all over the country. This group of farmers were award-winning farmers. Um, they had been recognized either regionally or nationally as um, some of the very best sustainable and organic farmers in the country. I talked to them, I asked them what kinds of weather changes they were seeing, how they were adapting, how they thought about managing for resilience on their farms and ranches, and then what were their thoughts about the future. I just want to share with you right now um, a few of the high-level practices that showed up no matter where the farm was or rancher was located and no matter what they were producing. <clears throat> these practices are, um, I consider these key resilience practices. The first is soil health. Well, and the other thing I want to say about this is I don't think any of this will be particularly surprising to a group of organic farmers. But hopefully it will be encouraging. Hopefully it will be encouraging. So um, among all of these farmers, there were 27 award-winning farmers that I talked to around the country. Um, they all mentioned these key practices as for them important tools for resilience of their farm. The first is soil health. And this is understandable, and I'm sure many of you that I'm talking to today understand soil health at, at, the, at its most basic level is buffering the extremes of the more variable uh, temperatures and precipitation that we're seeing. And there's all sorts of other benefits to soil health as well. But that was a particularly, uh, these farmers and ranchers viewed this buffering ability of soil health, the, the ability to absorb heavy rainfall and then to store it for plants to use during dry periods and drought as particularly important to managing the changing weather patterns. Planned biodiversity, really important key practice that these farmers and ranchers identified. And I, I said planned biodiversity because they're actually thinking very carefully about how and where to place different species in the, on their land to um, get the benefits, the resilience benefits of biodiversity. They're selling into diverse high value markets. So they're diversifying marketing, but within each class of marketing, whether it's class of market, whether it's, it's a wholesale market or a retail market, they're going for those high value markets. And then there were also, because of this too much and not enough water, all of these farmers and ranchers were thinking about how to improve their water management. So very specific focus, targeting a lot of thought in what they can do to improve water, uh, the water cycle on their farms. Physical protection was also mentioned as an important resilience practice, specifically uh, being used to, to protect crops and soils from heavy rainfalls. And then 
many of these farmers described increasing their recovery reserves. Maybe that's cash, maybe that's feed, um, maybe that's increasing the amount of land that they've got reserved, grazing land that they've got reserved, uh, increasing water resources, storing water, just any resource, critical resource that's needed on the farm. This group of producers mentioned that they had increased those recovery reserves. And that was because they were seeing more frequent and intense disruptions in their farming practices that were requiring some kind of um, repair from a, a damage being done by weather. And so that brings me to the future of food. And I just wanna share with you a few thoughts about um, what I've learned in the process of working with these farmers and others over the last decade thinking about resilience. And one of the important lessons that I've learned and the producers that I write about in Resilient Agriculture, all of them fit this theme or fit this model too, is they're not thinking just about uh, what they're doing to the farm gate. They are all engaged with their communities. Many of them engaged on a regional level with the communities that they serve. And they, are they have taken on roles in the food system that go beyond just producer. <clears throat> and the first thing I wanna to talk about is, wow, all of the different solutions to farming or eating in a changing climate that are bubbling up. Um, these are just a small group of the different ideas that are being discussed right now. Everything from regenerative organic to cultured meat to a vegan planet, agroecology, carbon farming, sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, local food. I'm sure you're, you're aware of many of these ideas. Some of them have become movements. Um, and one of the things I think that resilient agriculture, or I'm sorry, that resilient thinking can do for us is help us figure out which of these solutions will get us where we want to go. Which of these solutions will get you and your community where you want to go? Um, so remember, we've got those three rules of resilience that we can use any solution that's being suggested. That first rule is you can ask or, or, or interrogate a particular solution by asking, does the solution, does this solution cultivate diverse networks of mutually beneficial relationships? The second question you can ask is, does it cultivate regional self-reliance? And the third question you can ask of any solution is, does this solution tend to accumulate a diverse portfolio of wealth for, for communities? Once you begin, once you have those three rules to begin to begin thinking through solutions for the food system or for your farm, 
you that that's a really those are really helpful three rules to begin looking at and deciding and prioritizing solutions for your farmer for the food food system. So I just want to share just a few examples of some big ideas I see out there that are following all three rules of resilience. And the first big idea is a sustainable development idea that is, or a sustainable development concept that's been around about a decade or so. It's gotten a lot of interest in, in other countries, other first world countries or developed economies. Um, not so much in the U.S., and I'd really like to see some more emphasis put on this in the U.S. in the context of climate change adaptation. And that's called the city region. And there's a lot of words on this slide, and I understand you'll be able to, you can come back to this um, at another time. I don't want to go into a lot of the details here. What I want to do is say that this is an established sustainable concept. It is being developed and researched in some in many other developed economies. And the basic idea is that we begin to recognize that rural areas are providing a multitude of benefits to urban areas. City region is also looking at how do how do we think on a regional level about feeding ourselves? And it, it is describing um, shifting agriculture to be more diversified and shifting market agricultural markets to be focused on nearby urban areas. There's been some, this model of uh, refocusing agriculture on urban areas has bubbled up in some other kinds of research in the US as well. This, particular model was developed by a group at the Earth Institute. Um, and there were no agriculturalists in this particular project. They were a group of um, primarily nutritionists and another sort of human and social scientists that were interested in addressing some of the US's uh, diet, diet epidemics, um, obesity, and also food security. So it was a social scientist getting together and thinking about how we would need to change the food system in order to um, feed everyone well, address both the nutritional issues in the US and also food security issues. And this group of non-agriculturalists came up with this model that they called Nationally Integrated Regional Food System Model. And perhaps by now you're recognizing that this is a city region model drawn to a national scale. So this is another example of how some of these ideas about re-regionalizing our food system and, re and diversifying agriculture fit together to create more resilient food systems. And then finally, a little bit closer to your home, um, really excellent work done Oh, eight years or so ago with the New England Food Vision. This was a project that tried to answer the question, can New England feed itself and how might it feed itself? So this is a very early specific example of a project in, uh, in New England that is taking this um, city region food idea 
and trying to actually put some numbers to it to see how realistic it might be for, for New England to feed itself. Again, I don't, I won't, don't want to go into the details, but I do want to point out that one of the scenarios that was addressed in this project was to look at regional self-reliance. And so very early example from the US of looking both at resilience of agriculture through the food system and also this city region um, food system idea. And then I wanted to share a few other uh, examples that I found in my, well, this is just one example that I found particularly interesting and innovative um, from the work that I did with the Farmers and Resilient Agriculture. And that is the water as a crop project. The, the, grower, the ranchers that were involved in that were Gary and Linda Price. They are ranching down in, uh, in Blooming Grove, Texas. And all I wanna say about this is, is it's, the, it's an example of this city region uh, returning resources to the rural areas, the outlying rural areas that the, the city depends on for its well-being. In this case, water is a crop program. The uh, municipal water supply for Houston got together with a bunch of Houston breweries and also the um, Houston power system, the, the um, electrical generating uh, company that provides electricity to the area. So breweries, electrical power and municipal water systems got together and they contracted with the growers, the ranchers in the, in the surrounding rural area that um, contributes, that, that are farming in the watershed that Houston uses. Uh, they paid them to implement conservation practices on the ranches that would increase both water quality in the region and also water quantity. So this is already happening example of a city region project here in the US. I wanna to finish today with just a few words about hope because we are really living in very difficult times. Climate change forms this background, but forms a background for all kinds of social uh, and economic and uh, environmental challenges that are coming home and we're all feeling them in one way or another, uh, both near or far. And so hope is a particularly, um, it can be a particularly difficult thing sometimes to keep and to, to continue on. I know it's, it's the work that I do can be very difficult at times. And I hit some pretty dark days in all of the work that I do around um, climate change, agriculture, food. Um, and so I've taken a, a deep dive into hope to help myself and also to help others that, that I work with. Uh, and what I have learned is that um, it turns out that psychologists actually study hope. There are hope specialists in psychology. I had no idea. And it turns out that there's at least seven kinds of hope. And I want to talk just about two of them to close today. 
And the first kind of hope that I think is particularly relevant uh, when we're thinking about agriculture and food systems is wishful hope. And this is a kind of hope that you, you just hope that it's gonna be okay. It turns out that optimists and pessimists both share wishful hope. Optimists trust that everything's gonna be all right. They put the future in the hands of a higher power or another group, maybe our leaders or other people, um, other kinds of organizations, but basically they believe that an optimist believes that it's gonna be all right in the end. The really interesting thing to me about wishful hope is that pessimists also practice wishful hope. In this case, it's kind of the opposite perspective. Doesn't really matter what I do or anybody else does, nothing's going to work in the end. That's a pessimist. It turns out that both that wishful hope, both optimism and pessimism, leads to feelings of despair, disconnect, and disempowerment. So wishful hope is really not gonna get us where we need to be. But there's another kind of hope. The psychologists call it grounded hope. I'm not making this up. I, when I first was learning about hope, I couldn't believe that this was called grounded hope. What could be a better name for the kind of hope that we need to navigate through all these uncertainties, but grounded hope when we're talking about food and agriculture systems. But it really is called grounded hope. And it's the kind of hope that is generated by working towards a desired future in community. So it's taking action in community around a shared vision for the future. Psychologists tell us that grounded hope creates uh, a sense of agency, a sense of um, ability to make the changes that need to be made, and a sense of, I'm trying not to use hope, but as a sense of the ability to control our future and to, to have agency in bringing that future to bear. It's a very different kind of hope than wishful hope. And it's the kind of hope that we need to practice to um, navigate the changes ahead. So I just wanna leave you with, uh, with some ideas for how you might practice grounded hope in the pursuit of a resilient future. And the first is to use resilience thinking, not just in your farming, but in every phase of, of your life, no matter where you stand in the food system, no matter your job, no matter your family situation, no matter any relationship and any um, role that you take in society, you can use resilience thinking and you can start using it just by remembering those three rules of resilience and thinking about how what you do at work, at home, in community organizations, the decisions that you're making, are they following the rules of resilience or not? The second 
is to support a regional diversified agriculture. So wherever you stand in the food system, make decisions that are going to tend to support a regional diversified agriculture. The third is to participate in your city region food system in whatever way that you might define city. Um, can be your local town, can be a more regional food system, but do what you can when you can to participate in that system. The last action I'd like you to consider taking is to act now to stop climate change. We are in a climate crisis. It is going to take more than just buying local food to, to uh, slow and reverse climate change. It's going to take more than changing to more regenerative soil management practices or organic farming. We need to be looking every way we can in our lives to promote action on climate change in all the different places that we stand and all the different ways that we're leaders. We need to act to stop climate change now. Thank you for tuning in to Common Ground Radio. Common Ground can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU 89.9 FM. And archived versions of the show can be found through the station's website at weru.org, as well as through the WERU app for your smartphone. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next month.